Can I encourage you guys to open the Bible to uh, Psalm 107? Psalm 107. If you need a church Bible, there's still a bunch on the table at the back there. And we're going to begin verse 1, which is on page 852 in those particular Bibles. So Psalm 107, I want to read you the first three verses of the psalm, and then we're going to jump right down to verse 23 and read the next stanza or the next section. Let me pray. Father God, we, we thank you that in, in the midst of life, Lord, your voice penetrates and cuts through. And Lord, we come to you now as people, Lord, whose lives are constantly in need of your guidance and wisdom. Lord, some who've never really known you, some who have wandered, and some, Lord, who just need fresh zeal and energy for today. We pray, Father, you come and nourish us, change us even, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' precious name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Let me read you the first three verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now, as you know, if you've, been, if you've been tracking with us through the psalm, um, in, in the verses which follow, the psalmist paints a kind of uh, picture of the kinds of ways that God uh, finds, the ways that God finds us, or the places in which God finds us and rescues us. And he talks about people who are wandering in the wilderness, in other words, a kind of spiritual wasteland, without God, without a sense of, um, of spiritual satisfaction and he brought them to the desired home. He brought them home. Then he talks to those who were in the prison, which has to do with um, how the things we do, the choices we make, sometimes they begin to shackle us and bind us. And particularly in, in the biblical language, I think it's speaking about the sinful choices we make and how sins, initially they seem so appealing, but they become like traps and they become uh, kind of bondages around your, your wrists and ankles that bind you in, in, in a place which you wish you were, could get free from. And he says how God, again, he rescued them. He lifted them out. And he talks about those who made foolish or stupid decisions, and they ended up suffering in their health. And I think it, it, it does mean physical, but I think it's much more than that. It's about the sicknesses, the, the life sicknesses that begin to pervade your nature when you give your life over to foolishness and sin. And uh, none of us could deny that we've experienced something of that in the decisions that we've regretted that have led to things in our lives that we wish we could undo. And he describes again how God can heal, how he can, he can mend the brokenness of our lives and knit us back together in some kind of sense. Then he comes to this fourth picture. It's in verse 23. He says, and it's quite distinct from the others, as we'll see. Uh, there's a different tone to it, a different tenor, a different um, angle, I suppose, He says, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. So these are merchants who found themselves in a storm. And again, it's it's a metaphor that stands for something in our lives. He says, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble, 
and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were, were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Let me begin by asking the question, then. I'd like to take a slightly fresh angle on this and ask again, what is this psalm really about? Um, when you think about these four successive images of the, how God finds us and, 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 and works in our lives. And I think one of the ways you can answer that is you can say that this psalm is about um, your attention. What you are giving your attention to in life, and particularly um, in a spiritual sense. Because if you think about it, the life that you live, the course that you take, the journey that you take through life, is really the, the expression or the sum total of the things that you pay attention to in life. So if you're a person whose whole mind and heart is fixed on love and relationships, then generally your course will follow um, that, that path. You will either be in a succession of relationships, or you'll find your one true love, but love will be characteristic of your life. If you're someone who's given over to a passion for success, an ambition in life, in career, or something like that, if that's what consumes your mind, your attention, then your life is going to follow that course in some sense. So the things that you attend to, or the things that you pay attention to in life, become definitive of your, your very existence. And of course, that's no less true when it comes to spiritual matters. And uh, in some sense, in, in probably in the most important sense, this is, this is what we are meant to pay attention to in life, that we are called to be people who pay attention to God in the sense that we live lives that are worshiping Him. Now, I want to just highlight a few problems then with this whole reality of the, our attention and what we pay attention to in life. And here's the first, that we are, attention is a very limited resource, um, there was an experiment that was done back in the late 90s, 1999, at Harvard University in the psychology department, where they, they put uh, people in front of a television screen. They recorded, probably some of you know this, it's very famous now, they'd recorded six people uh, throwing around basketballs in a room, three with black shirts, three with white shirts, and they're running in circles around each other, throwing balls between each other. And the people who were in the experiment were told to sit down, watch the te- television, and count how many times the people in the white shirts pass the balls one to another. This is a practical illustration of attention. So you can only really pay attention to one thing at a time, so I encourage you to keep your eyes on me if possible. And uh, so as, as they were passing the ball between each other, they said, count how many times the people in the white shirts pass the ball. And the answer was 15 times. And, uh, you know, you either get that right or you get it wrong. But here was the twist. Halfway through... The, the sequence of film. A man walked on wearing a gorilla costume amongst the, the players, stands, looks directly at the camera, and then carries on walking off. And what they found was that 50%, half the people who watched this video, did not notice the gorilla walking into the game of basketball. And because their attention was fixed on counting the number of moves of the basketball. And it's, it was an illustration, really, of the fact that the human mind by design, actually, has a very limited capacity for the things it can pay attention to. You have a narrow range of focus. And if it were any different, then your mind would be very quickly overwhelmed. You have to eliminate distractions all the time in order to achieve anything or think about anything or really become anything in life. 
But of course, this is something that plays for you and against you. The problem is that when something becomes overwhelmingly important to you in any given moment in life, everything else begins to fade into the background. And this is true in your spiritual life. If, if something becomes incredibly important to you, be it a relationship or be it your career or whatever it is, how hard it can be to sustain any mind or attention on the things of God in those moments. And so God can either, maybe he never was part of your gaze or he recedes into the background in some sense. So attention matters. Here's another problem with your attention. That it's more natural, of course, to pay attention to the things you see than the things you don't see. And, it, and really, the things that are put in front of your face somehow get a disproportionate sense of importance to you. Um, you've, noticed, you've probably noticed this, how you know, the people you hang out with, the things that are important to them become important to you, or the city you live in. If you're a Londoner, the things that matter in London, they, they're in front of your face, and the things you see become important to you. You become interested in things that Londoners are interested in. It changes you, because what's in front of you gets your attention. I notice this ph- phenomenon every year um, in my life when I was growing up, because when Wimbledon would come on on the television, I had zero interest in the game of tennis at any other point in the year. But the second it was on TV, because this thing was in front of me, and the TV was just on, and you're watching it, you get absorbed, and suddenly it becomes the most important thing in the world for two weeks of your life, doesn't it? And you experience this again and again, and, and it's true of main, all sporting events. I'm not really a sporting guy. I don't really take an interest. I find you know, grown men throwing or hitting balls around, I find it to be of very little importance in my ordinary life. But when it's on TV for extended periods of time, suddenly you get sucked into these things. Like guys playing snooker. snooker. Snooker is really the dullest game ever invented, isn't it? But if it's on TV for long enough, like the world championships or something, you can actually get into this thing. You think about the phenomenon of curling. I think it's the only sport I heard people talking about at the, winter, at the, the course of the Winter Olympics this year. Because somehow, despite the weirdness of it and watching people slide down the ice, brushing ice, it actually gets your attention if it's in front of you. And this is just the way the mind works. The things that you see somehow become more important to you in time, and they begin to, to overwhelm and to consume your attention. And of course, the reason why I'm stressing that again is because the things, spiritual matters, God himself is not visible. He is spirit, the Bible says, and we, we cannot see him. And so it's obvious, in a sense, that for God to consume your attention is not necessarily an automatic or easy thing. And another thing that we can say here about our attention is that we're not good at, at seeing what's really ma- what really matters. What, putting things in their correct proportion and paying attention to the right things. You ever downloaded one? It's a scary thing to do. Ever downloaded one of those apps that tracks how much time you spend on the other apps on your phone? I encourage you to do it if but it will depress you for a while. And you, you, you look at how your time sinks into... You had no idea you could spend that many minutes or even hours on mindless things. And, and how easy these things consume our attention because we don't consciously assign a sense of importance or relevance or importance to the things that we pay attention to in life. You ever had that experience? If you've had the privilege of being on a, on a flight or an international flight with the entertainment system... The minute you sit down, you want to get your film on, you want to relax in your chair and watch a movie. And as soon as the flight attendants start to they switch off the entertainment system and they, they try and get your attention by force, by brute force, and you know, everything in you 
feels resentful towards them, even though you think about it, if that plane's going to crash, then really what they say matters a lot more than whether you get to watch your movie or not. But this is the way our minds work. We find it hard to assign the right level of importance to the things we pay attention to in life. So with all that, with all that said, here's, here, here's what I'm trying to provoke you to think about. is this question, how, how does God get our attention when we are ignoring him or wandering from him? For all the reasons I've just stated. And I think part of the answer is that he, sometimes at least, he induces a crisis in our lives which wakes us up and draws us out of our sleepfulness, our distraction, our obsession with lesser things. And that's what this psalm is about. Whether it's the experience of being in the desert or the prison or in sickness. And now, this picture of these merchants on the high seas. And this crisis that unfolds as a way of God actually changing their lives. Doing a permanent work of transformation in their lives. So, I want us to consider this third picture. And think of it through that sense about God, the things God must do to get our attention and I want us to consider it in, in three, through three headings. We're going to think about your limits, God's greatness, and your response. Your limits, God's greatness, and your response. Let me think then with you firstly about our limitations. This section just describes what these men are up to. It says they went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. Now, I've never met somebody who's in the merchant navy, so there's not an immediate sense of relevance to what we're talking about this evening. So what is the psalm speaking about? How do we apply this to our lives? And I actually think that this part of the psalm is quite different from the other parts. And I think that what he's speaking to are those of us who, possibly all of us, I suppose, in one sense, who have sought to make a success of life. And may even, you may even have completely not identified with the other pictures of what seems like people in that kind of victim position of being in the wilderness or the prison or in sickness. Because you think of yourself as somebody who has grabbed life like a bull by the horns and is a seeking to do something with your life. And there's a sense in which your life is going places and you're achieving things and you have desires and ambitions that you're running hard to fulfill. And I think that this part of the psalm speaks to that person. The other's very much in, in, a, in, in trouble and, that's, and it seems to be through their sinful ways. But this is quite different. This paints the picture of these merchants really at the, the peak of their existence doing the thing that they're passionate to do. Now, the reason why I think this portrays this kind of risk-taking, um, ambitious approach to life is because you have to understand that the Israelites were not a seafaring people. They didn't really have a passion for the ocean. And even though Israel borders the Mediterranean Sea, um, the sea in, in the Israelite mind, in the Jewish mind, was, was considered to be something frightening and full of chaos and dread. And it's partly to do with the biblical treatment of what the sea is. Right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, the image of the world as it's created is that it's formless and void and that there's waters over the face of the earth. 
In other words, there's something formless and chaotic about the world. Before, as the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters, life is spoken into existence. Land is spoken into existence. Order and and creation and life and all of goodness of the world is spoken into existence. But before that, there's this chaotic, dark thing, the sea. And when you get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when the new heavens and the new earth are created, one of the features of the new earth is that it is absent of a sea. There's no seas. Because it speaks, whether it's literal or metaphorical, in a sense it doesn't matter, but it speaks of the subduing of creation to bring all things into the order of God's command. And the sea, which is something so mighty and chaotic, is no longer a feature of this new world. So when you see in this part of the psalm, these people who are doing business on the great waters, you've got to realize these are, these are courageous, risk-taking, ambitious men whose lives in one sense, as I said, are kind of at the peak of their existence. Doing something they're passionate about and flourishing and thriving at it. And I think in that way, you know, it speaks to any of us who've, who've sought to to do something with our lives. Even something as simple as, you know, raising a family and having a successful marriage and, and having a career that means something and entering into, into business or whatever it is you do. And here's the problem with us in our success, just as it speaks to these sailors or these merchants, is that when we are <clears throat> in the midst of, of life uh, in this this way, we are, that's when we are least prone to think of spiritual things, to think of God. And particularly when we are most successful in life, I think. Because success can make you feel like you are in control. It can make you feel, feel like you've got a handle on things and you know where you're going, you know what you're doing with your life. These men are skilled men. They're probably wealthy men. There's a sense in which To this point, it's as though they haven't needed God. They're not like the wanderer in the wilderness or the guys in prison. These guys are doing what they're meant to do. But the sea, as I said, it kind of represents something uncontrollable, something chaotic, something that we, we maybe have lied to ourselves in telling ourselves that we have control over life, but we do not. There's a famous um, poem by a man called William Ernest Henley, who uh, he wrote this poem, Invictus. It's very famous because I think made, made mainly famous through um, the story of Nelson Mandela, who recited this poem to himself every day in his prison cell in Robben Island as a way of kind of rousing his own sense of dignity and self-worth in his spirit and keeping his spirit strong. And it has, it's got potent language. It says things like this. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. He says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That picture of man in his peak, in his, the power of his abilities, mastering the oceans, captaining his ship, guiding his life, subduing things around him. I think it speaks to that. But of course, here's the element that the sailors must see. 
which is that the oceans are in no way in their control. There is something wild and dangerous just beneath them. And I, of course, I don't think any of this is meant to be understood in a purely literal sense. The psalm is full of imagery. And it's designed to speak to all of us about the chaos of life that lies just beneath the surface of your day-to-day life, your day-to-day existence. The things that can strike you with surprise when you think it's all going well. You think about your career. How easily you can be hit by something which knocks you sideways, be it a scandal, be it redundancy, particularly in older years. How marriage, which you think maybe you've got a handle on this. I know how to, how to be in a relationship and have a successful relationship, but how marriage can be out of your control. Your spouse could commit adultery or, or have some kind of disease and, or sickness which takes them away from you. You could feel in control of family. You could feel that to raise children is your, your raison d'etre, your sense of, of um, your greatest call in life. And yet, anything can happen to your kids. The influences on them that are outside of your control. The powers that work on them. Think about your own health. You may pride yourself for eating well. Being strong, fit and healthy. But none of us are, are truly in control of it, are we? At any point, something could, could steal it from you instantly or over a prolonged period. At the very end, of course, aging will get you if nothing else will. Any part of your life, any part of your life that you think, this is, I've got this in hand, all of it is just teetering on the edge, as it were, of falling into destruction and chaos and panic, and fear, and all these things. And I think the purpose of this part of the psalm is to, is to impress upon us that at any point in our life, you, you are not as in control as you think you are. In other words, that you have your limitations. As much as we might say words like the words of that, that poem to ourselves, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, something happens to these men, and they realize that all of that's a complete lie. And you're a fool if you don't realize that can happen to you as well, is what the psalm is saying. It speaks to you in your limits. But we need to also look at the part of God in this, because it speaks about God's greatness as well. Where is God in the midst of what's happening to these men? Here they are, getting on with their life business. And then it says, verse 24, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. Where is God when life, when life hurts, when life goes wrong? I think our human tendency is, is to fail, as I said at the start really, is to fail to see God in life. It's to fail to see him in the success of life when things are going well. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks to this when he says that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and he makes his rain pour on the just and the unjust. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is saying is that 
no amount of favor in your life is outside of God's kindness to you. Even if you've never praised him with a single word. Even if you've never prayed to him. Even if you've never acknowledged him. The good things that have happened to you. The sun that's shining on you today is a gift from him. We fail to see him in in our success. Which is a problem, isn't it, of course? If you look at it with the eyes of God. How he must look down on us in our arrogance when we think that we have life in control. And we have created this wealth, or we have attained the success. We have done it by our grit and our hard work. We fail to see him in our success, but we also fail to see him or understand his work in our suffering. A lot of times when people are suffering, they see it as an abandonment by God. And actually, this is the striking thing and the terrifying thing about this part of the psalm. <coughs> is it doesn't speak about God abandoning these men. And I think the implicit assumption here is that these men are not God-fearing men. It's rather that God has brought himself near to them deliberately and that he is in the heart of this storm. It is of his command. It's of his doing. That's why it says they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. Because it says, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. It was his doing. You need to ask yourself the question, why would God induce such terror? Why would he bring men into such awful circumstances? And really, you know, we don't want to speak just in them in a distant sense. It's also true. The question is pertinent to you. Why would God allow you to suffer things that you would never wish had happened to you? Things that seem way out of your control. I want, I want us to consider the answer to that question, but I think we need to take a step backwards for a second. And just think about what this is teaching us about the sovereignty of God. I don't know if you've heard that language, but essentially it means this. That there is no part of life and existence that is outside of God's sovereign control, his authority and his dominion over all of his creation. A lot of times we we think with the fuzziest of thinking about this. On the one hand, there are some people, some well-meaning people, people who might call themselves Christians, who who would say that when, when you're in pain or when you're suffering, that God is not involved or that he is, he doesn't want that to happen to you. And of course, you, you read the biblical accounts and you know that you cannot make such a simplistic statement as that. Sometimes God is, as we see here, he's, he's the author of the storm. He's the one doing it to you. On the other hand, there are those who, who, kind of, who understand that you know, nothing in life is accidental and the way they might speak is to say, listen, nothing hap- not- everything happens for a reason. And it's often said in a very fatalistic way with a kind of a shrug. So just sort of ride the storm, as it were. Just go along passively with what's happening. And of course, that's not the biblical view either because we don't believe in fatalism. We don't believe in kind of this <clears throat> mindless engagement with the powers that be and the decisions above us. Now, the Bible has much more of a a nuanced way of speaking about this because it speaks about the involvement of the personal God in the details of your day-to-day existence. 
And that calls on you to wrestle with the reality of what's happening in your life. Be it pain, be it success and joy, whatever it is. To understand that God is at work in your life and that there is nothing that happens to you outside of his sovereign allowance or indeed his command. I want to read you just a few verses from the Bible that, that kind of open this up a little bit and teach this. So the verses which we heard prayed out in the worship time for Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's an image of God placing one cell, as it were, on top of another. That your very existence, your frame, your form was his creation and his handiwork. It wasn't that he just set things going at the beginning of creation and all just unfolded automatically. No, he designed you specifically in this active way. But more than that, the psalm tells us he was interested in the course of your life. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This is terrifying thoughts when you start to, to dwell on these sub- this subject. That God could know the end from the beginning and that there is nothing in your life that has ever been in from the divine perspective, an accident. You knew my days. There's a moment in the book of Samuel, <clears throat> tells of Samuel's birth. His mother was Hannah, and she was a barren woman, and of course, in, in those times, in the ancient Israel, to be barren was to be covered in shame. She goes to the temple to pray for a child, but in praying for a child, she, she also makes a commitment to devote this child to God. And God gives her a son. And she gives birth to Samuel. And she returns him to the temple to be brought up by the priest Eli. And he becomes one of Israel's greatest prophets. But Hannah, reflecting on her experiences of shame and then unbelievable joy. And there's something of the sadness and yet privilege of giving this child away. She prays a prayer out to God in which she articulates the wonder of God's control in the course of her life. And she puts it like this. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shield to the grave and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. In other words, wherever you find yourself in life, God puts you there. We could go on. There's so many other parts of the Bible which enlarge and fill out picture of God's amazing control in the details of our lives, his sovereignty. And so it brings us back to this question, which for anybody who's gone through anything which has frightened them or terrified them or seemed overwhelming to them, like the image of this storm, is the most important question you could ask is, why would God, why would he induce or, or, or command such terror in the lives of these men or in our lives? What possible purpose could there be in that? What is he doing? <clears throat> I don't want to run to simplistic answers here because I think that there is there's plenty in the Bible and in Christian thinking to say that we do not always know the whys and the wherefores of suffering. We do not. And if anything, if you read the book of Job, which is the most extended meditation on the question of suffering, 
the one thing you should come away with from that book is that simplistic answers will not do. The friends give him simplistic answers, but they are not the voice of God to him, even in his most tragic circumstances. And to simply say it's because of this or it's because of that, then we've misunderstood the ways and something of the mystery of how God works in our lives. But we can say this. That for the men in this particular circumstance, <clears throat> we line this story up with the other pictures we've seen in the psalm, and we can assume this, that these are not God-fearing men. And that, as I've mentioned, that they are, in a sense, that the, the height of their powers and of their abilities in life. What is God doing to them? And I think the answer is inescapable, that God's intention through this is to break their pride. To break the pride of man. That pride which is sort of captured by the Invictus poem, that unconquerable soul. That sense of being in control of your life. It says here just a little clue into how God does that. It says at the end of verse 27, or it says they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end, which could be translated that all their wisdom, which can also mean seamanship, all of their ability to handle and control the ship, it says, was swallowed up. That's the language that's used. All of their, their best thinking and their skill and their technical ability, all of it was swallowed up. In other words, they ran out of answers. They ran out of options. Nothing that they could, in that moment, they were completely cast upon the mercy of God. All of their wisdom was swallowed up. And it seems to me that sometimes there are certain ones of us, maybe most of us, who will not respond to God until we have exhausted every other possible option. Until we've realized that all of our wisdom has been swallowed up. And we're, we're out of ideas, out of answers, out of wisdom. And you think, well, it seems to me cruel that God would allow or even ordain suffering in our lives when God is supposed to be the God of love. But picture this. You go home this evening and you find that the block of flats you live in is on fire. And you know that your neighbors are in their property and you run in and find them asleep. Nobody likes to be woken up when they're asleep, right? Some people get angry when they're woken up from a deep sleep. Is it cruel to grab them by the pajamas and shake them until they run to safety? The obvious answer is, of course it's not cruel. And there's sometimes in life there's a certain amount of, of fear and of pain that has to be caused or brought about in order to wake us up to the realities of our needs. Our need in that case to flee the building or our need here to acknowledge that you are never in control of your life. Sometimes God will ordain things in your life to bring you to that point. If, if everything else leading up to this has not brought you to that acknowledgement of your need for God, then he, he may do that to you. 
I want us finally to think about your response. <clears throat> How do you respond when God, when he shakes your life in this kind of way? Some of you have been through this kind of thing, and this may be a past tense. How have you responded? How would you respond today? How will you respond in future? And really, I think there are kind of two courses, aren't there? There's the response of fear and the response of faith. Now, think about fear for a moment. That's where the sailors began. They reeled, it says, and staggered like drunken men. And rightly so. I think, you know, sometimes we, we talk about fear as a kind of a negative quality. And we speak about irrational fears as well. For example, people who have kind of phobias of germs. You know, you've heard of people who wash their hands hundreds of times a day. And some even who've le- lived in kind of hermetically sealed uh, chambers so that they could not have contact with the germs of the outside world out of some overwhelming sense of fear of the danger. Or people who will not board a plane because, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a fear that the thing will go down. And we, we, we label this as irrational fear. But in a sense, there are no irrational fears because life is terrifying. It's more of a wonder that you go about your day-to-day life without being terrified the whole time when you consider all the things that could go wrong from the minute you wake up. All through the night and presumably all through the day as well, you're breathing. And the breath that you're breathing is London air. And it's full of these chemicals that the diesel cars are spewing out and all the people burning their barbecues and their log fires. And this, this air literally is killing you. It's shortening your life. And, you know, we could go on all day inducing new phobias in your mind <laughs> of the things that you face in your day-to-day existence and the, you know, the germs you encounter and all these kinds of things. And it's a wonder that we don't go through life absolutely terrified all the time in one sense because, you know, a right response to the reality of danger is fear. And how much more so when you consider eternity, right? When you consider the possibility that death can come at any point and you must be ready to die. Because you must, you must have a readiness for what's beyond the grave. I think too, too much of the time we go through life with a kind of a casual ignoring of that fact. Not least because in our day and age, death is often removed from our existence. We do not see people dying. It happens in buildings that are designed to accommodate the dying and not usually right in front of us. And as a result, we live kind of deluded lives, deluded by a sense of safety or a sense of control, as I've said. And so in one sense, fear, fear seems to me to be appropriate when bad things happen, it's particularly when you're in the midst of a storm like this, be it sickness, be it some kind of suffering, whatever it is, fear seems appropriate. But remember that story in the New Testament, of Jesus being caught in a storm. In Matthew 8, we're told that he and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee, and a great storm arose on that sea. And I've only heard of the kinds of storms that can hit Galilee, but my understanding is that you can have enormous waves. And these men would be in a little fishing boat. It's not an impressive vessel, just something small something that will be thrown around and tossed from side to side. And what you find as the storm is raging, the disciples are confused because Jesus is asleep 
in the bottom of the boat. And it's, it's the most bizarre circumstance. How can a man sleep and be so relaxed in the midst of a storm? And of course, the contrast there is, is so powerful for us because he's showing us the image of, of, a, of Christ who is perfectly at rest in his sense of his knowledge of the Father's control over his life. He knows his time hasn't come, so he's not afraid of the storm. He's at rest in the sovereignty of God, in his perfect relationship with the Father. And you contrast that with the disciples who were in absolute panic because they think they're about to die. And Jesus kind of softly but firmly rebukes them in that situation. He says, oh, you of little faith. And I think what he's what is doing and what the psalm is doing is he's showing us that we never really know the quality of our faith and of our trust in God until, until you face things that you cannot handle. And sometimes God deliberately puts you in that position to expose what's inside and the fear that is rooted in a shallow or non-existent relationship with the God who loves you. And in that sense, it's his kindness that he would show you your need of him. The merchants start in that place of fear, but it quickly changes into faith. It doesn't look a lot like faith, I'll admit. But it says, then they cried to the Lord in their distress. I love that because, you know, we tend to think of faith as something robust and strong and gritty. And it's actually just grown men screaming here in this, this part of the psalm. They were absent of faith when they were confidently sailing the waves thinking that they had control over their lives. And suddenly they had something real when in their panic they cried out to God. Sometimes that's all faith looks like. It's a desperate cry. But it's the beginning of a pivotal moment in their existence where they they go from being godless men to becoming God-fearers like all the other people described in this psalm. I think that that is the clue. That's the heart of God's purpose in the storm. In their lives, potentially in your life as well. It's not to make you suffer per se, as though there was some good in suffering in and of itself. There isn't. I don't think suffering was our created purpose. I don't think God delights it in any sense. But God is interested in our change. He's interested in the transformation of of our hearts and of our person. He wants to humble us so that we'll see our need of him and turn to him. And more particularly, so that we will see our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. What the men on the Sea of Galilee experienced was the mastery of Jesus over the storm. After rebuking them, he stands up and commands the seas to be calm, doesn't he? I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, would, who preached on this psalm. And he describes it this way, how in, 
certain experiences in life, you all will know what this is like, how in a moment of panic and of dread and of bafflement of what to do next, sometimes somebody with mastery walks into the scene and takes control and suddenly peace descends. And Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor, tells the story of an occasion when he saw a surgeon going badly wrong and not sure what to do. He'd opened a body up and then things just went wrong from there. (laughs) Imagine the panic in that moment when you think, I have no idea what to do next and I need to put this person back together. And by chance, he said, a senior surgeon walked past the room and had already cleaned himself up and entered and asked what was going on. And in a couple of minutes, had the situation sorted out because of his superior knowledge, his mastery. And Lloyd-Jones goes on to say this. This is exactly how, how we can relate to Christ in the midst of the storm. He says, you feel at once that here is somebody who knows. Here is somebody who understands. Here is someone who has faced the storm at its most desperate with all the billows of hell howling at him. But he went through them all and came to the haven successfully. He's speaking, of course, course of Christ's experience in facing the cross. Whatever you think that you face and the torment that you're going through, whatever anger you may feel or fear you may feel, Please understand that Christ has faced more when he went to the cross. That the agony of that experience, even the terror of it, was greater than anything you and I have gone through. As it culminated not just in his death, but his abandonment, or his sense of abandonment by the Father. Lord Jones says, as he has stepped on board, he is in control. He understands. He masters life. He knows what he is doing. Ultimately, God's purpose, I think, is to bring you to a haven. He doesn't want to leave you in the storm. And it says of these sailors, they were glad that the waters were quiet because God stilled the storm. And it says he brought them to their desired haven. Friend, I don't think that that's so much speaking about the change of their circumstances, although it does. But it really speaks about the spiritual renewal that took place in their lives. As with each of the other images in this psalm. Because to be with God is to experience being in a haven, even in the midst of the storms of life. God's ultimate purpose is not just to bring you into a kind of comfortable existence, but it's to bring you into a position where your faith allows you to experience the peace which Paul says transcends understanding, even in the midst of life circumstances. In other words, Paul's describing a peace, it's in the book of Philippians, which is totally inexplicable. You may have experienced it yourself, or you've seen it in someone else. Someone who ought to be in a place of absolute terror and fear and panic and suffering. And yet, by God's grace, they have peace in a life situation which should be overwhelming them. I want to just tell you a couple of stories to illustrate this as I finish. 
There was a man who lived in the late 1800s from Chicago who called Horatio Spafford. And Spafford was a wealthy man, for a time at least. In 1871, most of his wealth was burned up in the great fire that hit Chicago because he was, he'd invested in property. And so he was a man who, was, who knew suffering, but he was also a devout believer in Jesus, a friend of the preacher D.L. Moody. But that wasn't the end of Spafford's suffering. Through, two years later, in 1873, he had decided to go on holiday with his family, and he had a wife and four daughters. And they decided to go on holiday to Europe, and particularly they wanted to go to Britain because D.L. Moody was going to be preaching in Britain. Back in those days, going on holiday was going to hear your favorite preacher. <laughs> Bring them back, O oh Lord. <laughs> and he, uh, he sent on his daughters and his wife ahead of him on a ship to cross the Atlantic. And the ship was struck by a metal ship and sank very quickly. And over 200 passengers were killed, were drowned in the sea. Spafford's wife survived, and she telegrammed back to Chicago with just these two words, saved alone. Anyone, anyone understands that that must be grief, but a parent understands it more acutely than anyone, I think. He had four daughters, as I mentioned, 11-year-old Annie, 9-year-old Margaret, 5-year-old Elizabeth, 2-year-old Tanetta. And they all perished in the cold seas. And Spafford, the great proof of his faith was the hymn that he wrote on the back of those experiences. He actually wrote it in the ship in which he sailed across the ocean to go and see his wife. And it says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. More personally, I feel slightly odd telling this story with my mom and dad here in, in the room. They weren't this morning. But back in 1989, my dad nearly died of uh, pancreatitis that had been induced by a salmonella infection, which is a one-in-a-million occurrence. And the pancreatitis is when your pancreas reduces the enzymes which go into your gut to digest your food, explodes, the organ explodes or bursts, and as it bursts, enzymes begin to fill your abdomen and, de and devour your body instead. And Easter Sunday morning, I remember vividly, I was only six at the time, but I remember vividly as dad was dressed for church, him rolling around on the bed in absolute agony, because of the pain he was in, in this acute pancreatitis. And what began was an unbelievably difficult ordeal, particularly for my parents, as he was fighting for his life, basically for six months after that. It began with him being operated on, and the surgeon leaving a vein bleeding into his stomach, and dad was vomiting pints and pints of blood. I believe it was 11 pints in total. And they couldn't put it in quick enough back into his veins. And over the course of the months that followed, he lost an, an unbelievable amount of weight and fought, was fighting to survive. And it was never really certain. I remember going to the bedside and seeing the tubes that were in dad's nose, you know, the oxygen tubes and 
and wired up to the machines and the bleepers and all the rest of it. And my mom used to go and see it at his bedside. And, uh, you know, mom's an emotional person. <laughs> but also very strong. But also very strong. But one of the things that we had to come to terms with was the possibility that at the age of 36, he might die. And uh, my dad used to say to mum these three words, which he'd heard from a preacher in London, Artie Kendall. And they were simply, dignify the trial. And there was a picture that's lived in my mind as an image of what it means when you believe, as I've been teaching, in the power and the control and the sovereignty of, of a God who, for whom nothing is outside of his his will, his ability, his control. When you rest in the relationship of a God like that, then even when the trials hit you, you can know, as they were told in the book of Romans, that God works all things together for good for the, those who love him and accord, according to his purpose. <coughs> to dignify the trial is to be able to stand in the midst of the storm and experience the haven. God's ultimate purpose in your suffering is to teach you that he loves you. I know that in this room we all are coming from different experiences. Different parts. Some of you have been through suffering in the past for which you have never really felt you've understood the reasoning. Some of you go through it now. Some of you will in the future. I was reminded of this verse when we were praying before the meeting. In 1 Peter 2, it says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That was his purpose for us. He wanted to rescue us from a life of pointless sin that we might live a life for him. It says, by his wounds, you've been healed. By the blood that Christ shed, you were, you were healed up. He applied his balm to your suffering. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. God's desire for you, from where, in whatever situation you're in, is always to return to your shepherd, Jesus. To know no matter how great the pain of life, that he is the master of the storm, that he has experienced pain that's deeper even than ours, and he loves you in the midst of it. He wants to shepherd and oversee and heal you. Will you pray with me? I want to pray, and I'm conscious that typically in this kind of situation, we all resonate with slightly different aspects. Uh, coming from different places. But the important thing is that we, we come to Jesus. So as I pray, I want to encourage you, you know, whatever your agony, whatever your confusion, whatever your doubt, whatever your pain or fear or frustration or anger, whatever it is, that you bring it to him. Because perhaps God wants to induce in you, as he did in these merchant sailors, that cry of turning to God. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, 
but that cry of trust. Father, I thank you that nothing is outside of your will and control. That you are the God over us, with us, under us, all around us. Jesus, in our foolishness, we so often think that we can be self-sufficient. We can be prayerless as an expression of our independence and our pride. Lord, I pray you spare us from greater pain that we wouldn't need that in order to see our need of you. For those, Lord God, who are in the midst of the storm, bring them to yourself even now, I pray. That we'd find rest and peace in you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.